Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Riz Reyes is a horticulturalist whose career has deep roots in the Pacific Northwest. His work, however, taps into international associations like beneficial mycorrhiza. From being born and raised to the age of seven in the Philippines to studying in China. All of his lived knowledge and experience and expansive sense of community come to bear not only in his career as a horticulturist, garden and floral designer, speaker and teacher, but on his new book for children and families with children. The book is entitled Grow, a family guide to plants and how to grow them. Riz joins us this week from his office as the assistant director of horticulture at the storied Heronswood Garden in Kingston, Washington, to share so much more about his horticultural journey and its many fruits. Riz, welcome to Cultivating Place. Oh, it's a tremendous privilege and honor. Thank you for having me. So I, of course, just waxed enthusiastic about what you are doing in the world. Introduce yourself to listeners the way you introduce yourself and maybe include in that introduction the significance or role of plants in your life. Wow. My name is Rizanino Reyes, and I go by Riz for short. And I'm a Filipino-American uh, horticulturist, uh, floral enthusiast, uh, garden designer, uh, now um, published children's book author. <laughs> yeah. um, as many horticulturists do, uh, we wear many hats. And my journey in horticulture started at a very early age back home in the Philippines, where I grew up in a fruit plantation that my father uh, operated. So early on, I was exposed to plants and nature, uh, fruits and vegetables. And um, I'm so glad that to this day, it still holds a significant uh, part of my life that I can look back at my homeland and where I'm from. And everything that I grew up with still resonates and it's still impactful and it's still as fascinating as it was back when I was, you know, three or four years old <laughs> um, yeah. as a little kid. So plants play a very, very important role in my career, of course, but also within my personal life um, in how I uh, interact with others, uh, how I eat, how I take care of, you know, where I'm living. Um, it plays a very, uh, very, very important role. And I love that um, reference to how they can hold our past in what they evoke for us and how they can transport us back to family and childhood with just like a scent, right? Or a sight or a color. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want you to take us back a little more. Mm. You you gave us a very distilled version in your elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. There must be a like garden metaphor way to say elevator pitch it must be the like i don't know wheelbarrow pitch uh or something <laughs> um but you mentioned the importance of being a filipino american of where you grew up and where your family hail from as it were tell us a little bit more about those people and places and plants 
and maybe giving us some highlights of how they grew you into the the man you are and for whom plants and their many faces of contribution to our lives would really like infuse all of your life? Mm. I think for me, having the upbringing that I uh, that I had, I feel very fortunate, um, challenging at times, of course. Um, but plants were always an escape for me, um, a place where I felt safe. Um, if mm-hmm. I was feeling bad, feeling lonely, or if I was at school and you know being teased for uh, liking plants and flowers, um, <laughs> uh, I could always go back to the garden and just get lost in in nature. And growing up, I had that all around me, whether it was um, being at the fruit plantation up in the mountains where I grew up, you know, we didn't even have electricity where we lived. We basically lived in a, in a, in a, uh, palm leaf hut and made out of bamboo and grass (laughs) um, that my father had built. And so in a way, playing was outside, was interacting, it was foraging for, uh, for fruits. It was, uh, you know, capturing uh, frogs and, you know, things like that, that were a part of my childhood. So with that, we immigrated to the U.S. as a family and we... How old were you at the time? I was seven years old. Okay. Yes. Yep. I just turned seven years old and we came to the U.S., in 1989, um, in July, actually, July 4th, to be exact. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> um, so it was my first time seeing fireworks. And I have this very vivid memory of, um, well, first meeting my grandparents, because I'd never met them, and mm. um, getting in a car and uh, and looking outside. And it was July, it was really bright, it was sunny, and it it felt cold. <laughs> Again, coming from the tropics, uh, it was cold <laughs> for me. And But I looked out the window, and it was this landscape that was so new to me. It was so foreign. And it was fascinating. I, you know, I'm looking you know, left and right at uh, all these uh, trees that were in the shape of these cones that I've never seen before. And I think early on, I was exposed to flowers and and gardens because my grandparents uh, were uh, were hobbyists, gardeners. Um, Mm -hmm. And also my aunt, um, we first lived with my aunt when we first came and she had a large yard. So, and had a lot of different types of flowers. And I was just naturally drawn to just being outside and just getting lost in uh, in the yard and exploring and you know smelling things, picking things, getting in trouble for picking things, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know and all those memories that I'm just now kind of thinking about. Wow! And I also remember getting stung by hornets. Uh, I believe they Ooh. were hornets multiple times, uh, like the yeah. day before I started school. Oh, oh, yes, that's terrible. (laughs) Now, wait, so you, when your family immigrated, some of your extended family had already immigrated to the U.S. Yes. And you landed in the Pacific Northwest, is that? Yes. Yeah, Um, so like what a crazy different landscape, Riz, to go from, yeah, and 
different temperature, different humidity, different, uh, but also to have the ocean not far away, mm-hmm. maybe was a little grounding, was it? Oh, oh, I didn't know that at the time, you know, okay. in terms of geography. I wasn't really shown yeah. like a map, like, okay, here's where we're at. Right, we're going right. to take a plane. We're going to fly across this big body of water. And then we're going <laughs> to land right now. I, I didn't get any of that. Um, no. But uh, one thing I did Uh, I was later told that we weren't supposed to stay in the Pacific Northwest. We were actually, um, my mom had intended to join uh, her siblings uh, because most of them were living in California. So we were supposed to go and and live down in California, but um, it didn't end end up working out that way. Uh, And in some ways, I'm grateful for that because here in the Pacific Northwest is where I obviously learned to garden and learned to uh, build my career, so to speak, um, here. So yeah, in a way I consider myself lucky. Okay. So you are this impressionable seven-year-old. <laughs> you you move across continents to get here. Uh, you land in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you're stung by hornets. And then you go to school <laughs> where people make fun of you for loving, uh, you know, all plant nerds unite yes, right there. Yes. Um, And so take us from there. At what point did you recognize that this really was going to be your path? Oh, gosh. I will be honest and say that the teasing and bullying growing up uh, sort of fueled my my career, my, my passion, my intention to want to be better than them. And wanting to show them, and also not just them, you know, that picked on me as a kid, but uh, my family, you know, and those close around me that would say things, you know, they would always instill in us to work hard and, you know, to do well in school um, and, um, you know, that sort of thing, and which I did. Um, and But at the same time, I had this passion, this interest that I wanted to pursue. And I understood where my parents were coming from in terms of, you know, coming to the United States and the land of opportunity and wanting them to, uh, wanting us, me and my siblings to have, you know, a better future. So they just wanted to make sure that we did what we were supposed to do to ensure our success in life. And I think already when I got the sense that they weren't that supportive or confident that I would succeed in what I was doing, it fueled me to work harder, to study more. I wanted to learn every single plant and and, and, it's, and their botanical names, where they were from, and also be recognized for doing something different. And I think I have my elementary school teachers to thank for that because they encouraged me, you know? They mm-hmm. let me draw my flowers. They let me at recess, uh, play by the fence where there was a neighborhood, you know, garden. And I remember um, picking flowers, again, getting in trouble for picking flowers, um, (laughs) putting them on my hair. And they would just, you know, smile and would tell the other boys, you know, that were, you know, uh, making fun of me to, you know, to quiet down. They let me be me. And I'm so, so grateful for that. And I hope every young boy that ever has to kind of go through that has that um, support system behind them and because they let me share my plants and flowers during show and tell and I was always you know oh the plant guy or flower boy you know they had all these different nicknames for me but I knew that it was something that my teachers 
were very impressed with. And I think I wanted mm. nothing more than, yeah, to obviously do well in school, get a good grade and, you know, a good grades and that sort of thing. So anything that I can do to, uh, you know, to impress them really was sort of my, um, my motivation. So growing up, I would always go to the library and check out books and I would learn about a particular group of plants and then ob- obsessively study them <laughs> um <laughs> and and i every time i do garden talks i talk about phases how gardeners have yeah. a, you know a rose phase or right, right. Uh, you know a dahlia phase whatever it may be i am not a stranger to those things and to this day i love them but yeah the library was my second home uh, because again, it, I felt safe. I also got in trouble for spending in the library too long because I should be outside <laughs> playing, um, you know, with other kids and, you know, that sort of thing. But also I will add growing up, everyone seems to criticize television and how, oh, television. And now of course we have all sorts of different media now raising children, right? Um, this generation of uh, children being raised by television. I was one of them and I am very proud product of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. Because, um, I mean, yeah, yes. Unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yes, there's a lot of garbage on television and uh, things that I probably shouldn't be watching, uh, shouldn't have watched as a young kid. However, one of my connections from my childhood to from being, having born, being born and raised in the Philippines and coming to the U.S. was Big Bird, oh. <laughs> Sesame Street. Yeah, and we were watching television, and instantly I'd recognize Big Bird and all the characters, and that was my introduction to public television. And so after the kids shows, etc., I can't remember which day. I believe it was Sundays where they would have the cooking shows, you know, like Julia mm-hmm. Child and Jacques yeah, Pepin yeah. and Graham Kerr, uh, who I met actually a few years ago. Um, wow. and, um, and then the gardening shows came on, in particular, the Victory Garden. Did you ever watch the Victory Garden? No? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 This is Cultivating Place. Conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking today with Riz Reyes, a horticulturalist whose career has deep roots in the Pacific Northwest. His work, however, like beneficial mycorrhiza, taps into international associations. From being born and raised to the age of seven in the Philippines, to studying in China, to holding a multitude of fabulous horticultural positions across the Pacific Northwest. We'll be right back for more with Riz after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. 
As we enter into this season of gratitude, roughly from November 1st to January 1st, a season that encompasses the halfway point between the summer solstice and the winter solstice, that holds traditional days of thanks, heavily baggaged as they might be, and traditional days of reverence, whatever they might mean for you, bound up in rituals of the winter solstice, of the many winter holidays, celebrating the longest night and welcoming the slow return to the light that begins as well. Celebrating the slow, deep, quiet dormancy of the winter season in the Northern Hemisphere and the beginning of a new calendar and seasonal year. I want to take this exact moment in this exact season to give voice to my incredible gratitude for the many of you who listen to this podcast regularly. Maybe every week, maybe a few episodes every month. I'm not sure. All I know is that tens of thousands of you listen every month, that there are millions of listens each year, and I am grateful. I know how many podcasts are out there. I know the choices you have. I know that in choosing to listen to Cultivating Place even once, you are voting with your time and attention for a worldview in which we grow the world better together through our voices, through our shared stories, through our common gardening impulse in community. It's rare that I have a chance to thank you in more than just word and the weekly deed that is the podcast, but I have that chance right now and I'm going to take it. The only way this podcast has grown in the flourishing, healthy, word-of-mouth way that it has grown, without me hustling for sponsors, without me hustling to advertise, is through you. It is through the very pedestrian pathways of people sharing episodes with other people, of people commenting or posting on social media about an episode that particularly resonated with them, of people writing reviews and rating the program in places like Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else people write reviews. So I have an offer I'd like to make. I have five gift codes to download the audio version of What We Sow. I'd like to send them out to five of you. For anyone that is called to rate or write a review of Cultivating Place in any of these online places, to make a Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn post about why Cultivating Place matters to you, and then send me a screenshot of that rating or review or post, and I will add your name to my garden hat. And on December 21st, the winter solstice itself, I will draw five names out of that garden hat, and I will send those five people a gift code to the audio version read by me of What We Sow. Thank you in advance for considering this generous, mutual flourishing and sharing of things we love. May the thankful season bring people, 
places and plants that you love and who grow you into your days. We're back now to our conversation with Riz Reyes, horticulturalist, gardener, floral and garden designer, and now author of a book based on plant families for human families. As we come back, Riz and I continue to explore the germinating force of imagination in our garden lives. A fifth grade teacher being impressed at my knife skills at um, <laughs> 12 years old. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, but yeah, things like that. Bob Ross. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, uh, the joy of painting, you know, that sort of thing. It introduced me to art. Um, and that's how I got interested in dance um, and all these incredible influences. And what was remarkable about public television and the Victory Garden was it was a window to the outside world of, you know, gardening plants, of course, but um, but uh, other subjects, um, somehow gardening related to uh, history, uh, it related to geography. And it was these lessons that um, in my parents' view, I think all they cared about was, you know, I stayed out of trouble <laughs> and, you know, they would watch what I was watching and think, oh, okay, I'll just, okay, more gardening, whatever, you know, so it, it, they weren't worried about <laughs> me, basically. And I right, just wanted right. to make sure that, yeah, they didn't have to worry about me. They thought it was a little strange and that, you know, a young boy should be, yeah, out playing basketball and, you know, teasing girls and playing Legos and GI Joes and that sort of thing, which I sort of did. Um, I, I didn't quite, you know, quite get into that, but yeah, they they, you know, I, I tried to prove to them that I was staying out of trouble. Okay, so you you are cooking, you are dancing, you are planting <laughs> flowers, you are you are loving showing that you are both succeeding and not not getting into trouble or only getting into a little bit of trouble. Yeah. When take us from there, like, do you go off to study horticulture at a higher level? Where do you go? Mm, I, I I do. Um, so all throughout elementary school through middle school, through high school, and even throughout high school, I knew, I learned the word horticulture. I learned that it mm -hmm. was a thing, that there was this career that you could have um, to grow uh, plants and uh, and flowers for, you know, mm -hmm. for, for gardens and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I thought, wow, um, I think that's the thing. And I looked up the definition and it was the art and science of gardening. And so I loved art. And uh, also, of course, loved. I know uh, I liked science a lot too. So I tried to emphasize the science as much as I could when I talked to my parents about my career choices. And every time I'm taking classes, you know, sort of thing. Because I remember the first, the um, first um, progress report or report card that I got. You know, my dad was looking at it and thinking, okay, well, why are you taking this class? Like, oh, it's a requirement. And then, well, what about this? You know, they're, they're very particular. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I always justified that, oh, yes, you know, I need to take these science courses. And I think in their mind, they're thinking, oh, okay, he's going to wake up, wake up out of this phase and uh, pursue medicine or go into nursing, you know, okay, yeah, that sort yep. of thing. Which, you know, hey, I could still do, right? You know, uh, but... Uh, Life is long, Riz. <laughs> we still have time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so then they're like, okay, you know, just, all right, keep working hard kind of thing. So uh, I did an internship in my senior year of high school. 
and uh, at the Washington Park Arboretum. And uh, there I learned about the program. The, they had an environmental horticulture uh, degree uh, through the University of Washington. So I thought, oh, that, that sounds great. But I also learned of this program through um, Edmonds. Um, back then it was the community college. Now it's just Edmonds College. And it was a, a technical school where uh, if you really wanted to study horticulture, that's what that's where you would go. You would get mm-hmm. um, your, uh, your associates and certificate, and they prepare you to work immediately uh, upon completion of the program. But then the University of Washington, of course, sounded more prestigious. Um, that's, of course, the university that my parents recognized. And uh, so, you know, I applied and luckily I, I got accepted. And immediately I declared my major, which actually ended up being uh, very easy because I didn't have a lot of competition, (laughs) Um, unlike other majors that everyone wanted to pursue. And already I had my schedule kind of lined up. I had my prerequisites and, you know, a few plant classes here and there. Um, And, and yeah, it felt good knowing that I had a path uh, that I was carving out. And of course you deviate, you know, as everyone does um, in their career and in their, in their education. So yeah, I was able to finish uh, my degree. It, it, it took five years because I spent a school year uh, studying abroad. And I had- Where? Where did you study? I had the most wonderful opportunity, Jennifer, to study abroad in Sichuan, China. Oh, wow. The mother wow. of gardens. Biodiverse. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, Riz. What year was that? That was in 2004, uh, oh, 2004, gosh. 2005 school year. And yeah. uh, to add to this, it was one of those opportunities that you sort of fantasize about that maybe it could happen, but then, eh, yeah, maybe not. But, you know, but it's still a tremendous opportunity. Uh, I've always been fascinated with Chinese culture and art and, of course, the plants that are native to China. And um, it was an incredible experience. And it's something that I will always, always encourage students to pursue. uh, Mm -hmm. Because my former professor, before I left, he said, Riz, when you come back, you know, you're going to be a different person. And I'm like, oh, well, uh, how, you know, like, well, why do you think that, you know, sort of thing. And then he just sort of smiled at me and said, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll see, you'll, you'll learn. You'll see. And, and, and it was very true. Um, you grow up so much when you remove yourself from what's familiar to you. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was also, uh, it was life-changing. It really was. And uh, and the incredible opportunities that I had, and of course it had its many challenges too, but it, it's also life. And I think without those challenges, I wouldn't have accomplished the things that I've accomplished or uh, have the uh, uh, the outlook of, of life mm-hmm. without those uh, without those hard moments. So, yeah. um, but one of the highlights of that, trip uh, horticulturally and botanically was uh, being invited to a plant collecting trip with uh, Dan Hinckley. 
Oh, wow. So fun. Oh, <laughs> yes. my gosh. Yeah. So that was uh, actually he was just here this afternoon at work. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I'm uh, currently working at the garden that he and his partner, Robert Jones, had started. So I am the assistant director here at Heronswood. OK, wait, before we before we move on to that, yes. because we, we will get there um, and then we'll we'll move to your book, Grow. But I I. I want to see if you have a similar experience to me, which is that it is so expanding mm. to go to a different part of the world to, you know, see different cultures, different ways they they live. And but very specifically, it's so fun to meet different plants, different biomes mm -hmm. and still feel a familiarity even with brand new plants, you're like, mm. wait, I think that could be in the rose family. Yes. Or is that in the rhododendron? Like that kind of reminds me of one of our rhododendrons. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so there's this whole new world, but you still have this grounding of the plant relatives you know from home. Yes. Do, do you experience it that way? Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. that what I think about that feeling that you describe, and I, we definitely do share that uh, the, that in common, where mm -hmm. finding these connections are so important for any budding gardener that is mm -hmm. wanting to explore this world of plants and flowers, because that's when information sticks. And that's when you begin to begin to open your mind to the possibilities out there and it's almost a reassurance that, oh, I know this plant. And then, oh, but I see this that look might be related. And then when you later discover that, oh, in fact, they are, it's so validating. Yeah. And, it is. It is. Yeah. And you just feel like, I think I, and th that was one of the key things in my, in my growing up that really spoke to me where I thought, wow, I know more than the grownups do. And when I, <laughs> when I had that sort of epiphany, that aha moment, I thought, okay, I think, uh, you know, I, I think I can be good at this. And when any yeah. young Aww. person can recognize that for themselves is so, so empowering. So empowering. Oh gosh. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you come back mm -hmm. from this, which does sound like a monument and, and, and for every listener out there, we can't get to every single thing Riz has ever done. I know, sorry. <laughs> please make sure. No, no, because I wish we could, but, but please make sure to like Google him. I will put links to some of his talks that are recorded. And if you ever have the chance to see him present in person, absolutely make it a priority to do so. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, yes. And so you go on this extraordinary cultural and horticultural uh, journey for a year in China. Uh, you have the great luck and fortune of being able to go on this uh, horticultural collecting trip with Dan Hinckley, one of our great plant uh, collectors and knowledge holders. And you come back a changed person. Where do you go in your your horticultural career before you land at uh, the the newest iteration of Heronswood? Oh gosh, um, when I returned, um, obviously I had to finish school and yep. finish all my requirements. Graduated, and I had a bit of a setback. I uh, I had a very serious knee injury that I re injured. And that set me back. So it was very difficult to garden <laughs> with uh, oh, with yeah. one good leg. Um, and 
you know, obviously looking at my options, do I still continue to, uh, you know, to garden and do horticulture? Um, do I look at different, you know, my other options? But it didn't seem like there was another option. Like I just had to go with it because already while in school, I had started my business. I had a small specialty nursery uh, growing um, rare and unusual plants that I was propagating and I was attending plant sales. And then all of a sudden uh, people were saying, oh, you should do some design work and some consulting. And, and also everyone needs another, uh, a maintenance person to weed their garden and, you know, just, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I took on a few clients as well, and I never intended to have my own business, but it just kind of ended up, ended up that way. So I was juggling a lot of uh, different activities. Um, and so do I pursue my business full time? But then at the same time, oh, it's not really that consistent. Um, I need to start thinking about, you know, benefits and, you know, like just, you know, adulting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, but an opportunity, a job came up uh, shortly after I finished my undergrad at the at the University of Washington for a, a gardener position at the Center for Urban Horticulture, which was my department at the University of Washington. And oh, yeah. um, and they had known me already because, again, um, there is a very well-known horticulture library there, the Miller Library uh, that I spent yep. a lot of time in. So <laughs> I worked there for them for a little bit. And then, yeah, and then this position came up first as a temporary position and then a permanent position became open that was part-time. Um, and I was in that position for eight years um, and working with the ground staff there at the center, which also worked with the staff at the Arboretum, uh, Washington Park Arboretum, where I, I did an internship when I was in high school. So it was, um, you know, they, and they knew me already. And uh, yeah, and a great experience to really formally learn the ins and outs of Pacific Northwest horticulture, how we garden, um, mm -hmm. best practices horticulturally for our climate, um, and really driving in on uh, the science and, and basically taking everything that I've learned in my undergrad and really applying it to uh, to my job because it was right there. So very lucky to be in that role. And I'm still, uh, I still volunteer there um, at the yeah. at the farm. Um, and uh, so I, I check in on the things that I've planted and every now and then I'll run I'll run into one of the gardeners and we'll chat. I'll help them weed, and <laughs> um, it's uh, oh, it's a, a wonderful facility and a, and a great position there that I had for eight years. We're speaking today with Riz Reyes, a professional gardener and garden and floral designer whose career has deep roots across the Pacific Northwest. We'll be right back for more with Riz and all the fruits that he has grown with his work. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. A second note of thanks I'd like to offer out is one of profound gratitude to the handful of you who financially support this program. 
It's an odd funding model, I'm going to admit that. It's a model, however, that I believe in so deeply, based on the time-honored model of public radio and barter economy and gift economy everywhere, because it helps me to keep this program exactly where I want it. Open access, free and available to any and all on public radio and the podcast platforms. It is the audio version of a public library or community garden or neighborhood tree who freely shares their shade, their fruit, their beauty, and their color. It's there to support and sustain and enrich anyone who might stumble across it and need to hear these kinds of voices talking about these kinds of things in these exact ways. It is for my remote listening friends out there in the universe, in their car, in a parking lot, in a drive through for a coffee or a burger, with their kids in the back on their way home from school or sports or after-school care. They might be on a treadmill, on a trail, in the garden, in the early mornings, in the late afternoons, on their lunch breaks, on a Saturday or Sunday morning with your coffee or tea before anyone else is awake and needs you. My small public radio station struggles to maintain even itself. The stipend it is able to offer me for producing and writing Cultivating Place is so welcome and appreciated but it cannot begin to keep the lights on for me dedicating my life to this work. It is the handful of you who have signed up to be supporters, whether that's one time, one time a year, or that is a little bit every month. It is you who have kept Cultivating Place open and available and growing. Add to that the two or three generous souls who, unsolicited by me, have offered to support the program in bigger financial ways. Ways that have allowed me to add transcripts, that have allowed me to remain committed to not taking on commercial support. Ways that have allowed me to add communication help to our team. To any one of you who gives and has ever given, to the Caddo Shaw Foundation, to the Garden Conservancy, to Ground Studio Gives, as well as several individuals that have given at larger levels. It is you who makes Cultivating Place possible, and I thank you. This work is not behind any paywall, and it will remain that way. This is a very public labor of love, and I labor over it in community with all of you. For this, I am thankful. If you would like to support the work of Cultivating Place, there is no time like the present to plant that seed. Follow the links at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com or scroll to the bottom of every week's show notes. There are all the ways and means, directions and links right there. And thank you in advance to those of you who can and do and will. We grow better together. And I am thankful for you.
We're back now to our conversation with gardener, designer, writer, and big-hearted thinker Riz Reyes. He is the author of a book entitled Grow, illustrated by Sara Boccaccini Meadows, a beautiful name for her work. Grow is based on plant families for all manner of human families, and it is contextualized through a lens of plants being superheroes among us. I love that. As we come back, Riz shares more about these plant superheroes and those he would not want to garden or grow without being part of his family. A very unique opportunity came up uh, when one of my friends and mentors, uh, Sean Hogan, who is the owner at the Sisters Design in Dansavi Island in Oregon, he referred me to a company that I've never heard of before, but supposedly was a big name in the uh, uh, Portland area. And I happened to learn about this company when I was down there giving a talk for the Multnomah County Master Gardeners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> are you familiar I am. with them? <laughs> I've spoken for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, a, a great group. And um, and so it's so cool when you get when you get to be a speaker and you uh, work your way up to uh, you know to be asked to speak. So they pick you up and they show you around. So we went to different gardens and nurseries and you get to meet so many incredible people. And uh, we still had a little bit of time before I had to lecture. And uh, my host was having a hard time figuring out where else to take me because we had a, a huge chunk of time left before I had to speak. And they were saying, oh, you need to take Riz to Edgefield. And like, oh, Edgefield, okay. Um, what's what's Edgefield? And oh, it's in Troutdale, just outside of Portland. It's a McMinimins property. And I'm like, oh, well, what's, what's McMinimins? <laughs> and they were kind of um, uh, having a hard time explaining what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and it was almost just like, just sit back, relax, and I'll show you when we're there kind of deal. And so we went to this huge property we went through the driveway and there is this vineyard in front and this large mansion of a building and then as I stepped out I immediately I noticed oh my gosh is that Magnolia Madier oh there's a Dorothea there's this incredible plant palette of rare and unusual plants that I was just all in one place like what what is this place place? it's like a it's sort of like (laughs) Disneyland for horticulture people right Pretty much. But yeah, but not just for horticulture people too. You know, there were people there with, uh, you know, with, you know, beer in hand. There were people walking around in bathrobes. And (laughs) I was like, is this like a resort or like, it was fascinating. And I didn't realize that three months after that initial visit to Edgefield, that I would be a gardens manager for one of their properties. That's so great. In Washington which State. One, okay, so, so which one did you do, did you manage? So I managed and helped open um, the Anderson School in Bothell, oh, okay. Washington. So yes. I think we better fill listeners in for those who aren't yeah. in the Pacific Northwest. But the McMinimins properties are this fantastic group of people. I think it's a, a corporation who take over... Uh, buildings. They could be old libraries. They could be old elementary schools. They could be old hotels. They could be old mansions like this one. And they turn them into kind of 
hotel, restaurant, event venue destinations, and all of them have these wonderful gardens all around them. Is that a fair oh, is that a fair gosh. summary? I'm, Absolutely. Yeah. Not all of the properties have the elaborate gardens, okay. um, but um, but their larger properties certainly do. And and it was fascinating. Uh, and it was a very unique opportunity because, uh, again, I wasn't really sure uh, what the job entailed. Um, but the more I learned about it and um, when I had my interview, which uh, with uh, my uh, my now f- uh, former, but then will be boss, uh, Eric Petschke, he's the corporate uh, gardens manager um, and he was a plant geek himself. So during the interview, it was just like, hey, this guy is awesome. <laughs> We're just talking about hardy chef flowers and, you know, uh, cactus gardens, you know, hardy succulents and um, he just seemed to speak my language and I don't mean English right. or, um, but, plants. you know, <laughs> but yeah, plants, you know, botanical Latin and okay, whoa, hey, this guy knows his stuff. And then he mentioned Edgefield and I'm like, I've been there. I know that place. <laughs> that place is awesome. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so it was a, a tremendous opportunity, um, but it was challenging to sort of sh- um, shift gears because now I was in this management position, which I've never been in before, uh, and um, and certainly learned a lot from it. And it provided this really unique opportunity for me to uh, to to do what I do, but to present it to an audience that wasn't the typical audience that I was used mm-hmm. to. And because they were primarily a hospitality company, they valued gardens and. I remember during construction, um, Mike McMinniman is one of the brothers. Uh, there's two, two brothers, Mike and Brian uh, McMinniman, who started uh, this whole uh, whole company. Um, Mike came up to me and said, "Oh, so you're the Wonder Kid that uh, that Eric's hired?" And oh, I'm like, "Oh no, what has <laughs> Eric told him?" Um, so like, okay, like pressure was on, right, to basically recreate Edgefield in Bothell, uh-huh. um, and that's kind of that's how I interpreted yep. it. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the key things to their success was hiring folks that were good at what they were doing and gave them the resources and the, the freedom to do their work and their art, you know, of course, to navigate it because, you know, what, what they were doing, because they were hospitality, but, um, but yeah, the, um, the, the freedom to, okay, I, we like your work. Let's see more of it. And okay. Wh- and well, you know, what else do you need in, in, in order to, to achieve that? And, and it was a very, very rare opportunity to create something uh, and to collaborate. And the funnest part really for me was during my orientation, I had to go down to Portland and um, and I got to meet the staff and the gardeners. And also when it came time to uh, visit our vendors that uh, that uh, that we worked with. I went down the list and I'm like, oh yeah, I know Sean, I know Paul, I know right. Greg, I know right. you know Nancy, I know you know all these people mm-hmm. that I already like. It felt at, at home, and they were so excited for me, and and that felt really good, to, you know, and for them to to say that, oh gosh, you know, you're like the you're the perfect person, you know, to be there. It's going to be awesome, and um, 
and yeah, and and it was a tremendous, tremendous job. And I still check in every once in a while and to see uh, all, a lot of the plants that I put right. in, uh, see them mature, um, but also um, the people. And and that's another thing too about what we do, Jennifer, is the uh, the relationships mm-hmm. that we develop. Yeah. Uh, personally, professionally, through the work that we do, um, speaks volumes, and um, and and that's another thing that I try and instill uh, with the next generation of horticultural professionals is to not burn bridges, to to build them, to embellish them, mm-hmm. um, to um, grow vines on them yeah. if needed, yeah. <laughs> to be able to. Uh, know that in a, in a way it's a small community, but at the same time, um, you know, we're a rare, we're a rare breed, as they say, um, in terms of uh, plant enthusiasts. So um, it was a, a, a tremendous opportunity that I'm glad that uh, I still stay in touch. I actually had their crew come to visit the garden and we did a work party together and we hope to do the same for oh, them. Nice. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a was a privilege to be able to work for McMinnigan. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. And I I think again, like I, I'm listening to you tell this story, Riz, and I'm thinking back to those elementary school teachers who said, just uh, let yeah. Riz be Riz. And you know, and to see a a a venture like McMinniman's include true horticultural passion. And it's apparent mm-hmm. at any of their sites that have a garden. And even I, oh, yeah. I stayed at the one in Tacoma and it it's right downtown. Oh, yes. It doesn't have a huge garden, but it still has the sense of urban garden. And and I just am so like filled with gratitude that these people have chosen to put their money into promoting valuing plants and and horticultural difference and novelty and beauty and it's just we don't see it very often um and so you know like the fact that they didn't want you to replicate edgefield they wanted you to riff off of that vibe and do it in your own way in this new place for its own way right yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's, it's nice that there's a, a, a template, so mm-hmm. to speak, to work from. So it wasn't as intimidating. Um, but at the same time, any time we work with, uh, let's say you have a client, a new homeowner that um, you're consulting with for a garden, we look at the existing space and see what opportunities come from there. And then obviously uh, listen to the client and what their vision is and what they uh, feel like they want and trying to go, it's a back and forth you know, process. And I certainly had that with McMinimins and the gardens grew each year. And I was basically by myself for, uh, for most of that first year. And then I was able to um, hire uh, uh, assistants. And then, um, and then, yeah, and then things shift and change and edit and, um, and they work very fast and it was, it's, it was very challenging. So I actually helped open that Tacoma property, oh, wow. the okay. Elks yeah, Lodge yeah, there, yeah. yes. And uh, there were times where I'm like, I'm never opening a property <laughs> with the minimums again, because you have to work at the same time as the contractors oh, do. Because, so yeah, because ideally... All that works there, and then the gardeners, you know, then the landscape comes in, right? right? But there, you're, you know, trying not to get in their way. You're getting yelled at. They're um, messing up your plants. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And part of me is like, okay, I don't want to start this project because 
there's still machinery that needs to go through here. That's just, there's, there'll be no point, you know? Um, so it was just a lot of kind of, you know, frustrating back and forth. Um, but again, it's, it happens in any work site. And um, so in a way it, w- it was good to experience that, that as well as challenging and as frustrating as that was um, it's being able to adapt and not giving up and that, oh, it didn't work this way that we intended. Um, you, you know, you, you shift, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and I think I worked with a wonderful team of uh, gardeners and coworkers and colleagues that, um, that understood yep. that, you know, that were flexible yep. enough that didn't just, you know, throw down the, you know, the, the trowel <laughs> and, and, and move on. I was about to say hoary hoary, but that might've been confusing. Um, I am but, throwing um, down my hoary hoary. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that understood that, uh, you know, that, the, you know, that it's an ever evolving process. You kind of have to let it go. Um, but, you know, you work as a team, but sometimes you have to work under the direction of someone that, you know, is, you know, the main lead and the main designer, mm-hmm. and they might not be the most uh, skilled at working with crews or people. Um, but at the same time, I think the, the team that I worked with, my coworkers were, uh, were great. And I think it's because of the culture and the atmosphere that McMinimins creates. Mm-hmm. It's very laid back. I remember even during my orientation, they had a staff safety meeting and all of a sudden pints of beer would appear in the middle of the table. And I'm like, are we still working? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, yes, you know, uh, we're discussing, you know, proper ladder use. But at the same time, Mike and Brian want you to taste the seasonal you know, um, beer. Yeah, <laughs> I'm it. not a beer drinker, you know, but, uh, but it, it was, again, it was that kind of culture, um, that, that they nurtured. Um, and, um, yeah, so there are times I, I missed that, but at the same time, I'm still in touch with them. And when we connect, it's almost as if, you know, we're just ready to work and, you know, yeah. again, and so it's great. It's great. So when did you, okay. So I, I feel, um, like I'm not being a very good uh, director of our content here because I'm just so <laughs> I love okay. all these stories, Riz. I really want to get to the book, but we can't yes. we can't just step over the 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 wonderfulness of you uh, being in place at the newest iteration of Heronswood. Can you give us a brief mm. synopsis of of when you went and what your role is there, and then we will do our best sure. to cover the book also. <laughs> Okay, sounds great. I'll, I'll see if I can tie the, the two together. Okay. Um, so uh, McMinimins Anderson School was, yeah, my uh, my home. And in some ways, people call it my baby. But, um, you know, and in some ways it still is. But I'm also glad to pass it on to someone else uh, that can then put their, you know, their interpretation um, onto it. And, and it's looking awesome. And everyone should come and visit. Um, but this opportunity to work um, at Heronswood came up when uh, my friend and now boss, um, Dr. Ross Baton, mm. um, uh, we were just you know casually hanging out. I went to visit the garden, and he had mentioned that there were going to be some changes in the leadership, uh, and that he was stepping up to be the director of the garden. Ah. So of course, you know, celebrated uh, that for him, and. Um, he said that, oh, well, which means that there is a position that's opening up um, and I'll, I'm going to need an assistant director. And it's like, oh, well, um, 
Uh, hmm. Um, so interestingly enough, a few years ago, Dan Hinckley actually approached me about the similar uh, position, but uh, I, I turned it down because I just started at McMinimins and, uh, and was fine. Um, but also taking on a job here in the peninsula, which is a ferry ride from where I was, um, so quite the commute. Um, I was hesitant about moving and um, and just the changes that would be involved with that. Um, so I initially, you know, initially declined. Um, but then uh, when Ross approached me about the job, I started thinking about, oh, okay, you know, have I, I asked that question about when you, when people think about moving on and moving forward, um, you know, have I gotten everything that I've wanted or, you know, or is there room to grow, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. within my position? Yep. And I remember you know, I'm telling myself, you know, I really didn't want Eric's position. Uh, it was just too much. Um, and so I was, you know, so I think that was going to be it, you know, for, uh, for me at McMinimins. And so maybe this would be a great opportunity to uh, step up um, in terms of a, a leadership role to gain experience. And also, um, I've been on a house hunt, um, trying to find, um, trying to buy a house so I can finally have my own Yay. garden. <laughs> so um, I'm still working on yeah. it. <laughs> um, and of course, it's very challenging now. Um, so and I thought my chances might be better if I move over uh, westward across the water to the peninsula and, um, and possibly find, a a, a, a home, a home yeah. there. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, talked it over and it was probably the most difficult decision I've had to make in my professional mm -hmm. career because the position at McMinimins was so unique and, um, because I, I was able to reach out to, an audience that I normally wouldn't um, engage with, uh, you know, within my work. So, for example, at the university, I worked at the botanical gardens there. And so if I had friends and family coming to visit, it was just kind of the gardens, you know, and I didn't want to bore them, you know, with, um, you know, garden stuff and Latin names. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, they'll enjoy it. But working at McMinimins, not only did they get to see my work, they had an opportunity to sit and have a drink and have a bite to eat um, or visit from out of town and stay at the hotel um, and swim, swim in the lagoon, uh, which we call the lagoon, so a, a pool that, that we have. Um, so it had all these different amenities and it felt like I was reaching out to a, a broader audience, so to speak. And I had this really unique job. But then I thought, okay, well, Heronswood, uh, it would be a step up in terms of you know salary and 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 position. I get to be, you know, I get to work with my friend, who seemed to like I could get a sense that um, he um, um, that you know he needed um, someone that would complement uh, uh, his strengths. You know, so basically, you know, we teach folks. You know, if you're in the business, you hire where you're weak, right? And um, he is a taxonomist, a brilliant taxonomist and botanist, uh, author as well. Uh, he actually can design very well, um, but it wasn't his strong suit. And he knew that that was something that, uh, that I uh, was good at. And also he needed someone that would also be able to lecture and teach. 
because um, they want he wanted to expand the programs uh, that we offered here at, um, at the garden. And so, yeah, I made that decision a little over a year ago. And um, and here we are I'm in my office <laughs> speaking to you um, uh, with actually my almost my entire collection of houseplants, um, because uh, where I'm currently living has absolutely no light inside um and um and yeah and in a way still adjusting to my new role here uh in new living situation and um uh, so yeah that's uh that's where i'm at now so i i think one of the things to point out to listeners as well who who may or may not be familiar with this shift was is that the 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 gardens at Heronswood have also undergone a transition and and in and Correct. in some ways a transformation of of mm-hmm. ownership of leadership of vision for what they are going to be and yes. to have your uh, very worldly perspective and um, to bring your particular passion to that now partially tribally led uh, and owned space with the idea of many ways of seeing plants and being with plants and um, promoting and learning from plants. I I think you are exactly right. You are a beautiful complement to the strengths that they already had in place. And I hope so much from that uh, new kind of uh, uh, affiliation in that garden. I, th- I think it could be a just a really visionary model for other people on ways to bring greater uh, diversity of human perspective and values into our public horticulture. Mm. Absolutely. And I think we're a ways from that, but we are certainly, in some ways, yes. Um, uh, So to our listeners here, uh, the garden is owned and operated by the Port Gamble Sklalem tribe. And they are an indigenous group here. And basically, they bought the uh, the garden um, 11 years ago uh, when it went up for auction. And it's actually their ancestral lands. And so um, to meet their people, actually to supervise, uh, my garden staff is half uh, tribal and, um, and working with them uh, has been a very unique privilege uh, because it's very different from what I'm accustomed to. Um, and they are not trained formally in horticulture. Um, they were trained here at Heronswood and it's a cultural uh, shift and, 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 and it's an adjustment phase that we're in right now, um, you know, because as we all know, there's more than one way to do things in, in horticulture and in gardening, right? And in some ways, it's kind of putting it all out there and figuring out, okay, what are our challenges? Because we're in this together um, and, you know, making this work in the gar- And there are many challenges that we're facing because of the shift that you were talking about um, from what the garden was and where it's going. And um, and for Ross and I, it's a, a unique opportunity because we're both formally trained uh, in, in botany and horticulture, uh, whereas um, a majority of our staff and also the, uh, the, um, the tribe that we work for, they don't have a grasp of you know, 
botanical gardens, public gardens, and that sort of thing. And in some ways, um, I I learned that it was sort of sort of a, a controversial um, purchase by the tribe, um, and you know, thinking, okay, well, what are we going to do with this, you know, botanical garden? You know, it, it's not it really wasn't within their uh, you know, scope or their radar, um, but now they're beginning to see its its potential, and so for Ross and I to step in now with sort of a uh, in a way kind of newer perspective, moving it away from being this sort of highly exclusive, um, directed only to the most avid, you know, gardeners uh, and you know, plant enthusiasts, um, shifting that uh, focus to more. Yes, we have these gardens, and we're preserving the legacy of Dan Hinckley and all the plants that he's he's brought, you know, to the region and into horticulture. Um, but at the same time, we're adding this component that you know, now this is now the tribe's garden. And in doing so, we're in some ways beginning to build the foundation of what that looks like. Um, and so, you know, does it include native plants? Yes, it does. Um, you know, are you still preserving, you know, the, um, you know, their initial plantings of what made Heronswood famous? Yes, we are. <laughs> I know. So we have a very full plate of things that we're trying to achieve. And we're figuring it all out given, you know, the limited resources, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that every garden, you know, has and, 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 and that they deal with. So I, I um, keep thinking back as you're talking, Riz, to your mm -hmm. self-stated ability to grow bridges and to embellish mm. them and to plant vines on them if you have to, <laughs> because that is what I see happening. And it's such a hopeful model and it cannot be easy, but I think in it is the seed of so much potential that, uh, yeah, that I, I, I keep watching it with great interest. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you think so. Because my experience working for hospitality yeah. uh, actually- yeah, uh, plays an, is a very important role in how we move forward. Mm -hmm. And I'll use the example of the UK. I mean, obviously, it's the model, you know, England has been the model of our of how we garden and our approach to gardening and plant collecting, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. When you visit a public garden in the UK, there's always a tea house, uh, you know, a tea room, a, you know, a, a place to sit and to have a cup of tea and a bite to eat and that sort of thing. It's almost a prerequisite in order to exist as a garden that people visit. You have to have those amenities. It's no longer that you just come to the garden to see a garden. There has to be places to sit and to relax and to refresh. And um, and it needs to be a full experience. Because one thing I learned from uh, from a, a garden director locally here, um, saying that in a way our competition as gardens, public gardens, is our natural environment. Uh, of being in the Pacific Northwest. So if someone is going to visit a garden and pay money to visit a garden, we have to be able to provide a, an experience that they can't get by just going out for a hike in the woods for free. So um, that's something that in a way, uh, my experience being in hospitality uh, has taught me that the longer that you can keep 
people engaged in the space, like a garden, for example, the more likely they will spend money. And I think that was the model that I learned uh, working at McMinimins because yes, the gardens were sort of like an afterthought in most people's minds, but when they're, you know, walking along and they're, they're seeing something or they're feeling something um, to want to stay and just to linger and to sit and just to soak in, you know, nature and plants and flowers and fruits and vegetables, that sort of thing, something that they can connect to and relate to at some point, they're going to be thirsty. <laughs> they're going to be tired. They're going to be hungry. And, um, and again, it's also the Filipino and me, Jennifer, of hospitality. Like it's very common to be, you know, to go to a Filipino household and, the, you know, they'll say, oh, hello, how are you? The third question is usually, did you eat? Right. It? <laughs> Do you need yes. something to drink? Do you need food? <laughs> right. something to drink? And I think and, yeah, the business model yeah. part of it, you know, is is important. Like we can't get, we can't get yes. around that. But so somebody right. is on the other side of a, you know, little ticker tape machine going, okay, we can keep this garden open because we are afloat. Mm -hmm. From the gardener's yes. perspective, you and me and the plant nerds of the world, our, our, mm -hmm. our view is the longer we can keep them there, the more they will learn and the more they will love plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I don't think of that directly. Um, I just, I think in the present, you know, are, are they enjoying themselves? Are they having a good time? And if we can have a conversation about the garden, uh, that's great. Um, but, you know, usually it's, you know, hey, I'm meeting a friend at the bar, you know, where's the wood shop or how do I get to the hotel? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's, you know, customer service, you know, is, uh, of course, uh, you know, is at utmost importance. But through that, there are opportunities um, to to engage, um, to, you know, there are times where like, okay, if I just can be brave enough to, you know, tell this uh, person that just asked where the bathroom was to look at this blooming, uh, you know, uh, whatever it might be, how right, right, or something right. in the wintertime and just how cool it is, you know. Um, but you know, so th there. That's I think that's the thing. You always want to try and meet people where they're at, right? You've, we've heard that ex you know that saying before. Um, and when you can you know keep an open mind and meet them where they're at, um, and, and you know you don't even have to try. Like being in the landscape, they can feel comfortable and they feel compelled to to explore. And at times, I just let them and you know, rather than bombard them with, you know, my, you know, with all this knowledge and all these interesting things, I think it's more important that they discover it for, for themselves. Um, so for example, if um, back at the Anderson school, if I'm working in the vegetable garden, someone asks, um, oh, what are those big thistle-like things? Are those artichokes? And they're like, actually, no, they're cardoons, you know, and explaining the difference between the two, but also the similarities um, between the two. And I think that type of connection and that type of, you know, to us, very basic knowledge in some ways fueled uh, my interest in wanting to write grow. Yeah. Okay. So we are, we are now there. Uh, we are well <laughs> over our time. So what I want to do, here's what I think we should do, but you tell me how you feel about this. I think that what we should do is I will give a tiny summary of grow. And then I will ask you my final question, which is, 
generally with people, if you had to live on a desert island for five uh, and you had five plants only to garden with, what would they be? So what I want you to do is pick pick your five superheroes uh, to share with us. But I'm going to give a little recommendation of, I'm going to give a little synopsis of the book. And then I will go back and kind of rework some of our script to now. Because a little bit like you're saying about how we direct people in the garden, right? I just love the stories that came out today. So I don't I don't want to take them away and force grow in, but oh, I really want to give problem. grow its its space too. How does that oh that's very does that kind. sound good? That sounds okay. wonderful. All right. Yeah. So Riz, I can feel the time uh ticking mm-hmm. on our, our conversation today. And I really <laughs> don't want to miss out on appreciating and calling attention to your fantastic children's book. Grow is imaginatively illustrated by Sara Boccaccini Meadows, a beautiful name to go with her work. I see in this, it was uh, published by Magic Cat Publishing uh, in 2022, and What I see in this is such a culmination of everything you have just shared with us. And it looks at plants through this lens of them being the superheroes in your life. And I love this lens, Uh, Riz. It's just, it's genius and so compelling for what we think of. So for for each of the, the plants that you uh, write the content for, and then Sarah does the illustrations for, um, all in the hopes of appealing to young readers, but also families who are reading to young readers, right? You include yes. what they are a hero of. You include the family they're from. In their you know synopsis, you talk about how they've been used and uh, why they are attractive or fun or interesting. And I just, I just loved the whole premise and I love the book and I think it should be recommended to every family of children age two and up. Um, so I generally end my interviews asking people if they had five plants, they really wouldn't want to garden or live without in their world what would those be? And so I'm going to switch that question just a little bit for you and say, Mm. if you had five plants that you could live with or could not live with or garden without uh, that were your superheroes in this book, choose five from the book to share with people, will you? This was my first go at writing a children's book. I was actually writing and trying to get a book published. So the opportunity to to write this book came about actually during COVID when the world shut down and everyone was going virtual. Everyone was adjusting to this crazy time of uncertainty in the world. And I get this email from this UK publisher asking if I'd be interested in authoring this book that they had an idea of. And I thought, oh, well, actually, I'm writing a children's book myself, but um, I'd love to see your outline and, and, and see. So I gave him some ideas and I thought that, oh, maybe we can 
talk about the families of these plants. And, and then the concept of the, of the superheroes came yeah. about. So th- this was all a new process for me. And I'm very fortunate to have had it because one of the things that I didn't know that if you were going to write a children's picture yeah. book was um, the publisher would choose the illustrator. Right. So like, oh, um, okay. Cause you know, I had a friend in mind, you know, already that I was going to ask. And so in my first go at writing and publishing a book, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do as I'm told. <laughs> and, um, you know, yes, I'll have some ideas and, um, and my, I might disagree, but you know, like this is my opportunity to learn. And good, so good, good mindset there. Yeah. And so, uh, we went back and forth about what, you know, what it was going to look like and it was hard to envision. And then they basically gave me a chapter as an assignment that I would write and then I would submit to them and then I would do another one. And then after I would do a, a, I would write a chapter, I would get a layout of, um, of the chapter with oh. some of the early yeah. watercolors that Sarah would uh, paint. And it was so cool just to see your words interpreted in watercolor. It was the, I remember seeing the first one, it was on the camellia and thinking, oh my gosh, how cool. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I've never met Sarah uh, and I've only uh, seen some of her work because, you know, you Google and you stalk people, right? So <laughs> you, I saw examples of her work, but she actually has a Seattle connection because when I Googled her, I noticed that uh, Seattle Chocolates came about. Oh. And if you look at the Seattle Chocolates offerings, they have different illustrations. And one of those was Sarah's. And so when the book was published, uh, we connected on Instagram, actually. It's like, oh, good to meet you. Hey, good job. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so I invited her to Seattle when the book launched and asked if she was interested in doing some book events to promote the book. And she was game. And so uh, she came and we had a blast. We had different book events and I had her connect with Seattle Chocolates um, just so she could connect with them since she was in Seattle. Hey, why not? And it ended up being we got to go to their factory and she got to see this huge banner of her painting. And they hooked us up with chocolate to <laughs> hand out to um, to folks if they, when they you know bought the book, and so people say, "Oh, it's such a beautiful book." I can't take credit for its beauty; it's all Sarah's. Well, the the visual beauty, yes, but the word beauty is all you. And you know, when I I mean, I have asked you to pick yes. five, but the fact is that each one is in fact representative of its whole family, which is partly why you include the family. So one is not one, but is many in, in what it brings out. Um, So let's start with the camellia one, since that was the first one you laid out with her and, and tell us what it's the hero of and how you chose that as its heroics. So the camellia. Oh, wow. You're really making me think way back (laughs) when I started this whole process (laughs) because it created the template basically for the other 14 plants and fungi that I had to, that I wrote about. And, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, you know, looking back at that. So with the camellia, of course, in the Pacific Northwest to us, it's a landscape plant that uh, blooms starting in, you know, fall through winter. And then of course, spring, um, 
And then I thought, okay, well, most people know Camellia, but don't really know Camellia. And often I'll ask, oh, do you like to drink tea? And it's like, oh, of course. Well, did you know that that's a Camellia? So then I thought, okay, tea, gosh, there's so many cultures around the world that drink tea. And I thought, okay, maybe that's a good starting point. I know it as an ornamental. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the different species, the different cultivars and how it's used in the garden, but to the rest of the world, they know Camellia, they know, they know Camellia through tea. And so, okay, well, let me emphasize that because there are so many cultures around the world that drink tea Mm -hmm. and it's many different forms. So I thought, oh, maybe I could use Camellia as a, a, a hero, a superhero. Think of it as a superhero in their minds as maybe it's a superhero of hospitality and also maybe health too because most people drink tea to feel better you know if they're sick and um, there's different types of tea you know that they could use but the camellia how about let's call that the hero of health and hospitality then I can begin to just elaborate on just that simple fact that tea is a universal drink in many cultures around the world. Yeah. It's a lovely little introduction into the bigger world of this one plant. And you do that for 15 plants and they aren't always the plants you you might think of. Like, you know, uh, they include uh, as sort of interesting as the pineapple and as mm-hmm. common as the carrot, or but yeah, so, all right, let's see. Let's go to, um, do you want to pick the next one? Do you want me to pick it? Um, I can pick it. Okay. The one I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing a lot of these. Some were, were very challenging and difficult because I had to do a lot of extra research. Yeah. But the next one I'd love to share with you is the apple. Okay, good. Yeah. And as a kid, I was obsessed with apples first and foremost. So I already, I had a personal connection. I knew this was a a plant, a fruit (laughs) that I wanted to talk about because it's a member of a family that is so vast and so huge that is very, very familiar to everyone around the world. So I start with talking about the apple and many cultures recognize it from Johnny Appleseed, eating apples, you know, fresh, making cider. All these things, it's just the most iconic fruit that I can think of. And then when you think beyond the apple and you think of its relatives, I could just sense a kid feeling like having that sort of aha moment. Because if they like apples, well, do you like peaches? Do you like cherries? Do you like plums? And that sort of thing. And like, yes, yes, yes. And then probably the most famous, most popular flower that anyone will recognize is the rose. Yeah. And did you know that an apple is related to a rose? And by just bringing those two plants together, one that they immediately recognize and the other, oh yeah, I think I recognize I'd love for them to think, okay, oh, well, what else? Okay, well, you also said cherries. And so it's getting them going. I think that's what I felt when I was writing and talking about this simple 
mm-hmm. you know, apple that I loved eating and uh, so much, especially when I still lived in the Philippines because they were very, very expensive because uh, they were imported. Yeah, and and I happened to move to Washington State, of course. <laughs> One of the so great asked, apple growing regions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're uh, like, "Riz, you must be sick of apples now." I'm like, "Actually, no. They're still one of my favorite fruits." Yeah. Oh, but to me, it. that w- that was an easy connection. Yeah. And one of the wonderful things that I really enjoy doing and uh, promoting Grow when I do uh, book events and uh, lectures with Grow is I bring a bunch of fruits and vegetables and flowers with me. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's so much fun, Jennifer. Oh my gosh. I wish you could go to yeah, one of them. I bet. Um, yeah. Because not only are you visually seeing these things, you can touch them, you can smell them, um, you can even eat them. You know, we have little tastings, yeah. you know, that, uh, you know, of course, is after COVID, <laughs> um, but it's been the funnest thing. And I'd like to think that any young child that comes to one of these events can begin exploring themselves where, you know, they can go to a grocery store and head right straight to the produce department and begin seeing these things that uh, that they saw, the things that they like and that they love, and then seeing new things as well, because that's how I grew up. And when I first came to the U.S., I bolted to the, the produce department. And typically, what's next to the produce department? The floral department. So yes. that's when I began to learn the different flowers and the different plants. Oh, that's a great story. And I love that the apple is the hero of heritage and history because it is just loaded with history, right? Absolutely. You have three more and you got to go oh, fast. Oh, gosh, now, three more. <laughs> oh, Jennifer, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> okay, I have to talk about the bamboo. Um, that's okay, another plant that so universal and most people wouldn't even think of it as being a grass but it is in poaceae and people recognize bamboo people recognize pandas which of course i got to see when i was in china um (laughs) and uh so yeah sara painted the cutest panda in the the bamboo chapter she did oh Um, yeah and that's another thing too that is so universal all around the world, yes, most people will associate bamboo with Asia and China, of course, but you know, it's so practical. That's why it's the hero of practicality. And it's, it has so many different uses all around the world that I can't help but mention it. But then when you look at the entire family, of course, you see grasses and then you start talking about food. Rice, obviously, you know, is a large component of that. Sugar cane. It's another one uh, from my childhood that I grew up eating and snacking on as as a kid. So that's definitely one. And then two more, right? Yep. Uh, oh gosh, orchids! I am an orchid oh, I love fanatic, um, and I'm actually right now have this beautiful fragrant Phalaenopsis orchid on my desk right now that's just bloomed and opened today. And sorry. Gotta <laughs> smell it now. Okay. Yeah, um, it's just so exotic, and also something that it's so fascinating, especially to a child. I I admire an orchid for its beauty and its presence and its history, but for a child, when you can talk about its pollinators and its evolution yeah. uh, as a plant. Uh, immediately you can get them hooked. 
you know, it's not just, you know, the, the orchids that you see as a big corsage in your grandma's, you know, uh, blouse during a wedding or um, the orchids that you see at the grocery stores, um, that sort of thing. It goes far beyond that where orchids are so strategic in their uh, pollination mechanisms, how they attract certain insects to, to, to pollinate them so they can continue to survive. That sort of thing I, I think is really compelling to, uh, you know, to a child. And then you introduce them to terms like pseudo copulation, <laughs> you know, where it's, <laughs> you know, it's a big fancy term for basically, yeah, tricking an insect into thinking that you're an insect. So it can, you know, pollinate you so you can make seed and, uh, and continue on to survive, you know, and to survive. Also, yeah. it's art and it's beauty, and it's um, that's why it is artistry and artfulness. How it's depicted in so many cultures around the world as this mm-hmm. yeah. uh, highly revered uh, flower. So, I've got to include that. And the last yeah. one, I want to choose it. Can I choose it? Okay, go ahead, Jennifer. Pumpkin. I want you oh, to choose pumpkin. pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, the hero of protection and companionship. You're probably wondering, huh, like, why is that? You know? So I had to look at that really quick because that's another fruit, vegetable, whatever you want to call it, that children immediately will recognize either as mm-hmm. something that they consume and eat, or of course, uh, here in the West, uh, the pumpkin jack o' lantern obviously comes to mind. And it's such a vast family, too, of things that, that children will recognize, you know, the cucumbers, melons, you know, that sort of thing. And if kids can see how they grow, and also the, um, it's also the companion. So um, are you familiar with um, the three sisters? Yes, but explain it, explain it, yeah. A planting method that's been used centuries where you're basically planting three plants that will grow together to basically support one another. So one of those is corn. So it grows very tall and provides support for a legume, like a, a, a like a bean or something like that, that will then, a pole bean that will then grow and be supported uh, by the corn. And then you have the pumpkin. So that's where the pumpkin comes into being a companion, but also a protector. The pumpkin, like a lot of members of the Cucurbitaceae, are sprawlers. So they cover the ground, they protect the ground. They, you know, from you know from weeds. They help. They basically act like a mulch to help uh, uh, prevent weeds and also help to protect and maintain moisture, to then support the beans and the corn in order to grow. So the three of these plants grown together make for a healthy harvest. So they grow in harmony and they support one another. So understanding that concept for a child that, oh, plants in a way are like people, you know, it takes a, it, yeah. it takes a team to, to thrive and to grow well. And you need you know, someone that's good at something that you're not maybe so good at, you know, um, you know, start thinking of, of plants almost as, as people, as if they had personalities. And in a way, they can look at themselves as being like, oh, okay, maybe I'm the pumpkin, or 
I can be the bean that, you know, the, you know, that can crawl up or, or maybe I'm the tall and strong corn, you know, the, um, you know, that will provide support. Um, and maybe I'm the pumpkin that stays low and, and protects the earth. Um, so making those kinds of connections, I, it was what I was thinking of when I wrote about pumpkin. And I just love the kind of universal truth of plants being our protectors and our companions in this world. Thank you so much for being a guest on Cultivating Place today. It's been a treat. (laughs) It has been an absolute treat and an incredible honor to chat with you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Riz Reyes is a horticulturalist whose career has deep roots in the Pacific Northwest, from studying at the University of Washington to going on to work at their Center for Urban Horticulture, from there on to the McMenamin's Anderson School, and to being a cut flower grower and garden designer. Currently, he is the Assistant Director of Horticulture at Heronswood under the ownership of the Port Gamble School. Glalom tribe. Riz's work, like beneficial mycorrhiza wherever we live, taps into the international associations he has experienced and nurtured in his life. All of this knowledge and experience and expansive sense of community come to bear not only in his career, but also on his newest book, Grow, a family guide to plants and how to grow them. Available wherever you get your books. Join us again next week when we revisit a conversation I am deeply thankful for. A conversation about the kinship of all of us and our responsibilities to that kinship with the leadership voices for our times of Gavin Horn and Rowan White. We explore what it means to belong in a world of relations. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and this week we welcome to the team Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga, helping out with communication. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm glad you're here. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 